as I say, in 2005, I, I had uh, information from a Parisian police officer. Uh, I met him at the Louvre, by the way, and that's where we sat and talked. And he told me he had a he had a person that he knew of that was in Miami, who was a Frenchman, who had access to the the Vermeer and the Rembrandt seascape. It's called the Storm Over the Sea of Galilee. So uh, I was able to get introduced to this individual in Miami, and I was the undercover as a as a very rich dealer who had clients who wanted to buy these paintings, and we negotiated a price of thirty million dollars for the two paintings. Uh, throughout that three-year operation, uh, we did recover, let's see, two Picassos worth $60 million that were stolen from uh, Picasso's granddaughter, Diana, from her apartment. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. James? Hey, Ray, good to have, have you here. Absolutely. And, and we have another special guest, don't we? We do. We have an incredible guest today. This person is responsible for the recovery of more than $300 million in stolen art and cultural property in the span of his 20-year career with the FBI. He's been involved in numerous arrests around the world. He developed and is the founder of the FBI's art crime team, what they call ACT, A-C-T. So you may hear him talk like that and give that acronym ACT. You'll know what that is then. He's also the FBI's national expert on cultural property crimes, and he has conducted hundreds of investigations in museums and with international police departments around the world. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Priceless. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Whitman. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ray. It's a good intro. Uh, welcome, you know, it's almost, hey, Jim, it's almost as if I wrote it myself. <laughs> Well, you did give that to me, you know. <laughs> I did, I did know. But it's all yeah. accurate. I checked. It's all accurate. <laughs> it is. It's all good. It's all good. At least you know, it's, it's on my website, so it must be real. <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's what they say, right? But well, you know right. what the funny thing? You know what the funny thing is? Is Bob? You know, you have an unbelievable background, but you're different than anybody we've ever had before in the fact that most of the individuals that we brought on had their training in law enforcement. They learned how to investigate the crimes that they were involved in because of the FBI or the department or the ATF or the DEA, wherever they were at. But you're widely recognized for your contributions in the field of um, crime investigation, and you're considered an expert in the recovery of stolen cultural artifacts. You've had a huge impact on the efforts to combat, to combat illegal trafficking of art and cultural heritage. But your beginnings are different than anybody else. Tell us about your background and your beginnings and how you got to where you were. Well, I'm like everybody else. You know, when I started at the FBI, Ray, just like you, you know, there was a great TV show I used to watch. It was called Miami Vice. And I wanted to be Crockett. <laughs> I wanted to be that guy on that cigarette yeah. boat down on Miami Harbor wearing a white suit driving a Ferrari or a Porsche. You know, and I thought the only way I could do that would be to be an FBI agent. So, uh, you know, I applied to get in and went to the academy and uh, you know, they, I went through the whole program. And, of course, they asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, I wanted to go to Hawaii. I wanted to go to Hawaii or to Miami. And so in the end, they sent me to Philadelphia. <laughs> I suppose. It's close. Yeah, it happens, right? Uh, so anyway, I went to Philly and there was no cigarette boats and no uh, no white suits. But 
but they have a lot of museums in Philadelphia. And so one of the first cases I was assigned was the theft of uh, artifacts, uh, in fact, a crystal ball from the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. And also uh, there had been very recently when I got there, a robbery at the Rodin Museum, a gunpoint robbery where a sculpture called the man with the broken nose was stolen, you know, at gunpoint from the Rodin Museum in Philly. So I guess, I guess the situation was that I was on a, a, a property crime squad and we were working mostly interstate transportation of stolen property and theft from interstate shipments. And most of the guys weren't that interested in going after crystal balls or, or Rodin sculptures. So uh, because I was a new guy, I'm the one who got sent along with my partner, Bob Basin, who you might remember, Ray. Uh, I do. Bob was the original uh, art theft guy from Philly, and, and I, he was assigned as my training agent. So it worked out that uh, we worked on that case together. We solved it, and on both cases. And in the end, uh, as a result, they sent me to art school. Uh, the office uh, sent me to art school at the Barnes Foundation. Uh, they sent me for a jewelry training at uh, Zales Corporation in Dallas and to the GIA in Santa Monica for diamond training. So as a result of all that training, you know, once the Bureau does that, they uh, invested in you got to start working those cases. Yeah, but you know what, Bob? You're a little different. Your upbringing uh, and your upbringing, when, and, and you grew up in Baltimore, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you grew up in Baltimore and your upbringing is a little special. Your dad owned a shop. Mm, yes. What kind of shop was it? What, well, what kind of shop was that? Let's get back to the art part of it in the FBI. You know, um, people mistake uh, art theft and talking about art with art history. And, you know, uh, having a background in art history is important, but it's not that necessary when it comes to these types of investigations. What you really got to have, Ray, is a background in the art business world. Because basically art crime is all about money and it's all about what you're going to do with the with the art when you have it or how you sell a fake or a forgery it's all about the business part of the art world and that's a big business it's about uh it's about 200 billion dollars a year that gets bought and sold worldwide when it comes to you know cultural property and all art the the illicit cultural property market is about six billion dollars a year so it's a lot of money involved in these in these crimes my background because of my parents was working in an antique store. My dad had an Asian antique store in Baltimore. And occasionally I would go help him. I grew up around antiques. I grew up around that whole industry. So I, I knew how to do a deal in the, in the art world. And that's what was important. So going undercover, working undercover to get uh, these cases uh, uh, you know, investigated and solved, it was all about how to make a deal in the art world to convince the thieves, convince the forgers that you were who you really were and that you could uh, make them money. That book, Priceless, and uh, it uh, it was priceless. I read it. Great, great book. I, I recommend it. And we'll and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But in looking at and talking about the art of the deal, you almost sound like Donald Trump here with the art of the deal. Right. No, but. No. <laughs> no, I, but that's when you talk about it, you say the art of the deal and being able to make a deal in the art world. What I I have no idea what that means. When you well, talk about making a deal, what is that? Well, you know, art art's a little bit different from uh, you know buying furniture or TVs. Uh, there's no set price, oftentimes, on artwork. Look, it's a piece of if it's a painting, it might be a canvas. The canvas and the paints themselves might be worth ten dollars, you know, in cost. But 
somebody wants to pay a million dollars for a Renoir or, or 10 million for a Picasso. And why is that? It's because of the background, the history, the authenticity, the provenance of the art itself. So understanding all of that uh, is part of the, of the undercover operation. Uh, usually the thieves who are out there doing these robberies, doing these thefts, they're not art aficionados. They're basically criminals who have had, uh, who have gone out un, and done one art job, okay? So they're, they're selling guns, they're moving drugs, they're doing all kinds of things. It's, and, and at the FBI, we used to look at these art crimes as what we call gateway crimes into groups that were doing multiple different types of violations. So the idea was to, or is to, be able to go in and speak as a person who knows how to do a deal in the art world and can sell or buy that art to get the best price. But Bob, just so we can clear it for our, our audience early on, it's one thing stolen art. I mean, that's something's taken off a wall at a museum and your job is to come in and track it down the best you can. But as you know, there are, as you know better than any of us, there are also forgers out there and forgeries. And there are people that make a full-time living at replicating or duplicating famous artwork and they'll and maybe the stolen one will then this will be passed off as one that's been recovered or someone will claim, oh, we found other artwork from, a, you know, Mark Chagall or someone like that. And it's very similar to his style, but it's not it's not him. And that, of course, is where you would also come in and people that do uh, the kind of work you do to determine the veracity or the legitimacy of this type of art. So, again, it's not just stolen stuff. Uh, per se, as you well know, but it's also forgeries. And I'm sure that's a whole different part of what it is you do. Yeah, the uh, as I say, that $6 billion art market, I, I think the estimates today are about three quarters of that is frauds, forgeries, and fakes. It's not stolen mm -hmm. art. And uh, that's a different kind of case. I mean, when you when you go out and try to catch an, a thief who's going out and stolen artwork, say a gunpoint from a museum or something of that nature, that's a different type of investigation than you do with, say, a forger. Okay, um, you know, catching a thief who's trying to trying to sell an artwork, you might do an undercover operation where you act as a as a broker or as a uh, gallery owner or something of that nature, where you can buy and sell the art. On the other hand, when you're dealing with a forger, uh, it's not about interstate transportation of stolen property so much, or recovery of stolen artifacts. It's more about fraud. So how do you how do you you know what violations are you going to be chasing? You're going to be chasing wire fraud, mail fraud. It's the it's these types of crimes that they're committing because what they're doing is they're trying to sell these fakes as real, and usually they're using the wires one way or the other, whether it's an e, you know an email or the mail itself or something of that nature to convince someone, and that's fraud basically. It's a, that's basically the definition of fraud, and the use of the wire or the mail would be the federal violation. So that's how. I would do those cases um, as either a stupid buyer, somebody who didn't know anything about the art, but just had more dollars than cents, you know, or I would do it as a, a shady dealer who had clients that we were going to we were going to cheat together, and then go and you know conspire together to be able to uh, to cheat these clients, and of course, you know along the way you're getting on wire, you know getting emails and, and letters and things back and forth, that proves knowledge and that proves all the elements of those crimes. Bob, uh, just following up on this part, besides the recognizability that you would have or an expert would have in saying, oh, that's fake because that blue is tinged in a different way that this artist would have done. Are there also forensic techniques nowadays where you can age 
an older painting, uh, of course, without damaging it per se, but any kind of uh, a, a sophisticated items that could be used in a laboratory to say, this is not a hundred years old, this is you know one year old, something like that, besides, of course, someone like you knowing what's real and what's not from the artistic perspective. Well, you know, the first, the first thing I gotta tell you, Jim, is I, I, didn't know, I never knew if something was real or not real until I had it looked at by experts. I mean, that wasn't my okay. call as an investigator. I'm not, an, I'm not a, uh, you know, authenticator uh, or connoisseur to that degree of any specific artist. Uh, generally, we would know that uh, the pieces that were being offered were fake because, you know, the people would tell us this is fake and this is what was happening, you know. Mm. Uh, but the thing is this, we, uh, you know, we, there are t all kinds of forensic evidence that can be put together today to look at uh, uh, artwork that has anachronisms in it. It's interesting, though, you know, you can look at it like a, um, you know, a Jackson Pollock painting and you can find anachronistic paints. In, in other words, paints that didn't exist in 1950 when he was painting those oh, things right, yeah. and making those drip paintings or say, you know, th those paintings didn't exist. But there's always an explanation. It could be that the painting was being retouched in 1975 or there had been some damage and was being fixed. And so other paintings were put in. You know, that was a case that we looked at uh, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York to look at a, a Pollock painting, and it was legitimate because the, 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 the um, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the curators had uh, done some work, conservators had done some work to touch the painting up in the, in the 1970s and use paints that weren't available in 1950. So there is a whole world of forensics to identify uh, uh, fakes and forgeries in artwork. They can look at canvas, they can look at the stretchers that hold the paintings apart, um, you know, Mark Rothko used a specific type of stretcher from a, from a, uh, a store in New York City. That store is still there, but all those stretchers came from there. So if you don't have that stretcher on your Rothko, it's not going to be right. Uh, he used certain kinds of canvas, you know, specific ones. Pollock and Rothko both used uh, paints that were experimental at the time. And, you know, they didn't exist in big bunches. So, again, you can look at that and see what the paints, if, if they existed or not when they were doing these paintings. You know, you go all the way back to the, the Impressionist, you know, Cezanne used all kinds of paints. There's a specific yellow that comes from a plant uh, that comes from the urine of cows in India. And that oh, yellow boy. was banned by the Indian government in the 1890s because of the sacredness of the cows. But they could still get that yellow, uh, you know, uh, pigment in France and in south of France where Cezanne was all the way up into 1915, 1920. So it still existed. So all of those things are part of the art history, part of the forensics of putting a painting together. Very interesting. Let me uh, let me go back to the FBI and, and uh, when you first got involved in this. There came a point in time where you uh, start getting, getting called on quite often uh, to the point where you started doing some traveling, you started doing some undercover work, with that, what was your backstory for for the undercover? What did they What did they make you out to be? I know, I know they. There's always a drop drop story behind you. What was that? What was that like, Bob? I had a bunch of them. <laughs> it all <laughs> depended on the uh, type of case, you know. Uh, like right. I said, if it was a fraud or forgery case, it would be, uh, you know, a shady dealer who had clients who wanted to buy this artwork. Uh, I knew they were fake. You and the, and the uh, faker knew they were fake, but my clients wouldn't know. So basically, I was just gathering evidence, you know, for them to show knowledge. So that would be one one you know thing I could do. Another one would be maybe a, a professor of art. 
working with uh, thieves to try to sell their art. You know, so they called me the, in Spain. They had a case. They called me the professori. You know, the artwork. So um, it all depends on the situation. As I said, sometimes I just played a dumb dealer. I mean, a dumb buyer who didn't know what they were buying, and so it could be taken easily. You know, as a as a con. So it depended on what uh, what was needed for that specific uh, case. All right, I'm going to ask you this: a two part question. All right, first one is, who is the dumbest? SOB you came across in all your years uh, buying and, and going undercover with the artwork? The dumbest was probably uh, uh, one of my supervisors that was in Boston. You lobbed them a softball, right? I know, what did you expect? Hey, look, hey, that's good. That's good. I love I love that because I know that's true. I know it's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's I true. ran into a lot of. Uh, a lot of headway, you know, with uh, with supervisors. Not in Philly, not in Philadelphia, where I was. They were all great, uh, but in other offices, they just didn't get it. So it was a kind of a fight up until about 2005, and then we started the National Art Crime Team as a result of that investigation that we did in Sweden, and um, you know, it, it became popular then. And then all of a sudden, then it was a different kind of headway. Everybody wanted a piece of the action, and that made it yeah. difficult to actually do the work because everybody wanted to be on the front page of the newspaper when we had a recovery. You know, and I was the guy in the back of the room who was undercover who didn't want to be on the front page of the newspaper. Didn't do me any good. Everybody else right. wanted to be. So everybody wanted credit for everything. And I, I was yeah. I used to say, look, just let us finish the case. And once we're done the case, you can have all the credit. It's okay with me. I don't care. But just let us finish the case. And many times it didn't work that way. It was tough. You know, it's funny you say that, and Jim can probably relate to this too. I remember when profiling first came about in like 1992. I'm in there and I'm, I just transferred in from Buffalo in 91 after three or so years. And it came around the same time you did, Bob. And uh, they said, hey, look, we need to send someone down to the NCAVC, down to the Behavioral Analysis Unit for training as is profiling it. And all the guys and on the squad right next to you, where I was, the squad right next to you, squad 10, and you weren't squad four, they said, you know what? I'm not, that, I'm not going down for that hocus pocus bullshit. I said, I'm not going down for that. You know? And so they, so the supervisor comes to me and he says, Ray, you're going. And I was like, well, you know, I was okay with it because I was really into it. And nobody understood that stuff. That but Tom, his time passed. That was Tom McQuaid, yeah. wasn't it? That was Tom McQuaid, but God, God rest his soul. But the same thing with the art stuff. Nobody understood that, Bob. That's, that's why they didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't understand it. This is bull crap. This is a regular thing here. The hell with this stuff. That's why you didn't get the support. That's why they were idiots up in Boston. You know, uh, because that, they didn't, they didn't get it. Well, part of the problem up there was that they had the Isabella Stark Gardner Museum heist in 1990. Yeah. And, um, you know, the problem was they wanted to solve that crime. And, and I don't believe they still haven't. It. It's been 31 years or 35 years, 34 years, something like that. And they still haven't. And, you know, uh, I was fighting with them in, in 2005, six, seven, eight, uh, doing undercover operations in Miami, in, in Barcelona, in uh, uh, Marseille. You know, it was just terrible work. But somebody had to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, but the point was, they, they just wanted to be the ones to solve it. And they couldn't stand the idea that somebody would come in and be able to do that. 
Bob, you, you brought up that uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner case from uh, St. Patrick's Night, or at least in morning after uh, of, ni- of 1990. I watched a documentary on it. I remember when it first happened. And uh, uh, there's a $10 million reward for the recovery of, I'm not sure if it's one or all of those pieces. I'm sure wherever they are, they're spread out. You may have other opinions, but um, uh, or in some closet somewhere, who knows? Uh, people are afraid to show them. We can get into that a little bit. But they estimate back in the day, maybe $100 million was the value. Nowadays, they're saying upwards of $600 million is the value on these 13 pieces of art. I get those numbers are fluid. They could go back and forth, probably not lower with inflation. But um, that case always amazed me from the early days. It was like you said, these are probably a couple of thugs that came in. Uh, They dressed as cops and they kind of tied up the security people they probably didn't know one piece from the other. Someone could have pointed earlier on, get this, get that. And then, of course, the bosses got hold of it and they took it from there. So whether it's mob involved and, and uh, it, you know, it, it stayed domestic, it went international. Are there any theories you have about that case at this point? If you're authorized no, yeah, to well, express what I thought it was, what I still think is that, uh, in, as I say, in 2005, I, I had uh, information from a Parisian police officer uh, I met him at the Louvre, by the way, and that's where we sat and talked. And he told me he had a he had a person that he knew of that was in Miami, who was a Frenchman, who had access to the the Vermeer and the Rembrandt seascape. It's called the Storm Over the Sea of Galilee. Mm. So uh, I was able to get introduced to this individual in Miami, and I was undercover as a as a very rich dealer who had clients who wanted to buy these paintings, and we negotiated a price of thirty million dollars for the two paintings. Uh, throughout that three-year operation, uh, we did recover, let's say, two Picassos worth $60 million that were stolen from uh, Picasso's granddaughter, Diana, from her apartment. Uh, we got those in an undercover operation in Paris. We had recovered four paintings that were stolen from the Museum of Fine Arts in Nice, France, uh, uh, Sicily, a Bonnet, two Bruegels. They were stolen at gunpoint in a gunpoint robbery. And we got those back in an undercover operation in Marseille. Uh, they, when we caught them, they actually had a, a 45 caliber pistol and a Chechen hand grenade in the car. So mm-hmm. these weren't nice mm-hmm. people. But the thing was, by the time we got all that done, my cover had been blown on our Vermeer and our Rembrandt. So we didn't get those back. But the French police, they mm-hmm. had wiretaps where they heard my guy, my bad guy, talking about getting the Rembrandt and the, and the Vermeer delivered to him in Marseille to, to be sold to me. So that's why the French police believed it was a real case and that this could be could be the, the things that was happening. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, like I say, the undercover was uh, was taken apart. We we all believed that the paintings were in Corsica, those two paintings. Now, I'm not saying I don't, I don't know where the other, third, the other 11 pieces are, but those two uh, we thought were in Corsica. And what's really interesting about that one of the things that was stolen in the robbery in 1990 was a, a finial off of a flag. Now, these guys went around the museum for an hour and a few minutes, and they stole 13 objects. A couple, uh, some of them were ridiculous, like a, uh, a few hundred dollar Rembrandt etching, just an etching, uh, and some other pieces that had minimal value. But one of the things they took was a finial, and this finial was the uh, eagle, the, the, what they call the Corsican eagle. So it was the symbol of the island of Corsica, the first regimental guard of Napoleon. Now think about that. It was Napoleon's Corsica. It was his first regimental guard. It was the flag 
and on top of that flag was this eagle fitting all the Corsican eagle. So that's missing. Well, nobody could figure out why they would still, you know, stop and and take this thing off of a flag while they're doing an art heist, right? Well, when we did this investigation, yeah. you know, it turns out turns out that the uh, information was that these two guys had these two paintings, and they were in Corsica. And it kind of makes sense now that you know, if you steal these uh, paintings and take them to Corsica, you know, during the 1940s, uh, the, the people of France asked for those paintings back, and not the paintings, the uh, the flags, because they were the cultural property of, of Corsica, represented the first Napoleonic Guard, and they never were given back. So, you know, maybe they took the uh, eagle finial to give a little clue as to why they were taking these paintings. Wasn't there also a, was it a, a work by Rembrandt at the Boston Museum, some famous uh, uh, painter, that they didn't realize it was actually painted on wood and it was so heavy and maybe so large, they couldn't just cut it out of the frame and they left it behind. So uh, that's what led me to that. They didn't really know necessarily what they were taking, although that Corsican item that you talked about could have been on their top of their list by whoever their right, sponsors right. were. So probably. Uh, but they didn't get the big one out the window. I, I was told it was or out the yeah, door. You know, the so problem heavy. is that the, uh, the the Rembrandts that they stole, they cut out of the frames. And so after 30 years, you know, the the, the, the canvas starts to lose its uh, elasticity. And, you know, there's oh, going to be a lot of damage sure. on those things. Now, luckily, the Vermeer was taken on the stretcher. So that should probably mm -hmm. be in pretty good shape. There is a $10 million reward. It's based upon the condition of the paintings. So, uh, you know, it is prorated per painting and upon condition. So if you get the Rembrandt back and it's completely destroyed, there's no reward for that. Whereas if you get the Vermeer back and it's in good shape, you might get $3 million. So it depends on the situation. Interesting. So cold red listeners and watchers, you have uh, you have an objective <laughs> now. Maybe you only get $5 million, but you know what? Yeah, That's well, not if anybody out there knows where they're at, please give us a call. We'll yeah, listen, out. I like to get 10%, yes. you know, since we're putting this out there. I want a finder's fee on this here. You you know, at least 10%. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, then, then me too. I know you too. I wouldn't, I'm not going to cut you out. I'm even going to cut Bob in, you know? <laughs> that's that's uh, the big, huh? <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Now, the second part of that question. I know you've done a lot of undercover. You told us a little bit about uh, some things, but when you get in these undercover situations, sometimes these situations can uh, turn on a dime very, very quickly. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, becoming very dangerous, where it's full of twists and turns. Can you can you enlighten us about something that you uh, were involved in during your career, where it was kind of tied into something like that? Kind of enlighten our listeners to something like that, Bob. Well, you know, anytime you, you work uh, as an investigator, and whether you're undercover or co overtly or covertly, uh, when you're talking about taking away people's freedom, it's always a dangerous situation. And often, and you know, the difference between an FBI agent working a criminal investigation and, say, a police officer is that a police officer uh, doesn't run into felonies every day. In other words, you know, everybody we we would deal with as an FBI agent was basically a felon. I mean, you know, that's that's the kind of people we were investigating. They weren't uh, misdemeanors or anything like that. So they were always bad guys. And in the end, if they're doing armed robberies, they're the worst. 
are the bad guys. So in, in the end, you are dealing with people who will, will willingly take your life. So working, you know, in that situation, you're always, you know, looking out for your, your best interests and the best interests of your partners. Um, I had cases, uh, I had one case undercover where the, uh, uh, I told you about the two Picassos that were recovered in, in Paris uh, that were stolen from uh, Diana Picasso. They were worth about $60 million. And ultimately, uh, when, they, when that happened, the police officer in Paris who was working with me, somehow the, the guys got arrested and they, they got an idea that I was an informant. Not an FBI agent, but an informant. So they sent a team, uh, we called them salt and pepper, to Miami to to basically knock me off, you know, as an informant, to murder me. And uh, we, we had a meeting at the Diplomat Hotel in a, in a bar at the Diplomat, where I convinced them not to do that, <laughs> that we could do more business together. That wasn't me. It must have been wiretaps on the international phone lines or something, but it wasn't me. And so they kind of I guess they kind of figured that uh, that maybe that was the best way to go. You know, maybe uh, discretion there would be the better part of valor since they wanted to make more money. And, and besides that, I had a gun in each pocket and they used knives. So <laughs> I figured they brought knives to a gunfight. We'd have, we'd have to see how and, that worked out. And it, and now they, Well, obviously you're still with us. Where did those guys wind they up? They actually, uh, because they didn't actually do anything, they ended up just going free. In other words, they didn't they didn't threaten me okay. at the moment. They were sent to, to and told, you know, by these guys in Paris to take care of this guy. And that meant to, not, you know, to, to, to knock me off. But because uh, they didn't do it and we talked it out, basically they were let go. Well, you know, it's funny, but a lot of times you say, well, you know what? How much did they offer you to do it? I'll double it. <laughs> <laughs> not to do it. And then we'll and we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and make some money. Yeah, you know? you I mean, hey, I, I, you know, Bob, I'll tell you, I, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine being in that situation. Um, so, so, you know, the reason we didn't really arrest them or anything also is because we didn't want to blow the case. If they had gotten arrested for that, they would have known I was, a you know, either an informant or an FBI agent. So in order to keep the cover going, we just let it go. And we kept moving from there, trying to get that Vermeer and that Rembrandt. I um a little bit of in, in the art world for me. I had a chief of police when I was in Ben Salem Township. His name was Rich mm-hmm. Viola. He's still yeah. around. He is Rich Viola, and he was a sergeant in the yeah. Philly PD. And I described him as kind of a Renaissance man. And he was the first person I ever met that was an art collector. And he started as a Philly cop. He met some art collectors in Philly or art distributors, whatever they're called, and they would pay him to fly overseas and take art with him and deliver it usually to Paris. And they would pay him decent money and he would actually fly armed, but he wouldn't tell the airlines. This is back in like in the early 70s, whatever. And he finally said one day, hey, uh, instead of paying me like, you know, twenty five hundred five grand, which was back then a lot of money. He said, oh, give me one of these little art pieces, you know, whatever. Yeah, OK, well, that'll be your pay for this job. And he kept it. And whoever that artist was died like a month later. And it automatically, of course, went up a whole lot in value. Anyway, when I left the Ben Salem PD to go to uh, FBI, so I learned a lot. I've been to his house. He has his own little art gallery. He collected more since then, sold and traded. Um, he gave me a book, Flash Ahead Unibomb. We uh, searched T- uh, Ted Kaczynski's home, not the cabin. We searched his home in Chicago where he grew up 
uh, or at least he, he, he lived in his later years with his family uh, for about two years when he first started bombing. And they searched the house, found nothing. And as the agents are walking out the door, oh, you know what? There's a fake wall that we never tore down. And I always, it has no, it's not load bearing. It has no you know, purpose to it. The agents go back in, take the wall down. And what do they find but a lithograph of a Toulouse-La Trek work known as At the Circus, Performing Horse and Monkey. And it's hidden behind a wall. And you probably are familiar with it. And uh, but if you look at it, actually, it's above my <laughs> desk now. I'm looking at it. It's sort of a, a bulbous clown with a whip in his hand with a horse uh, or a donkey and a little monkey. And if you read the manifesto of the Unabomber, you know that this clown is big business, big government. And the animals are basically mm -hmm. us, the people, the proletariat, the bourgeois, you know, uh, in that regard. But the key to it all was Toulouse-Lautrec in 1899, when this uh, piece was uh, was put out, he had a very distinctive way of signing his name. And if you look at it, it looks like FC. And if you know anything about the Unabom case or read the manifesto, that was his nickname, uh, FC, the, the title of the manifesto, Industrial Society and its Dangers, whatever, by FC. The bombs all had FC on it. So here, Ted Kaczynski hid this. It wasn't anything of value. It was a lithograph, just a copy he bought from you know a bookstore somewhere. But he had that hidden. And that shows you what the world was to him, how important that piece was to him. And actually, I wrote him a letter years later and offered him to, uh, uh, I'll give him a copy of that for his cell if he'd let me come and interview him. Uh, but he wasn't that interested and uh, the deal never worked out. Of course, now he's deceased. But it got me back into, I lose that book that the chief, Viola gave me at the time that art book to look up that Toulouse-Lautrec painting from 1899, and uh, I saw the little FC there. Maybe in post-production we can get it up here and show uh, and show the audience on the uh, on the visual part of it. And I just think an interesting aspect there. So I did have some interesting connection to the art world on a personal level while still a police officer, and then later, yeah, with the Unabom case too. Yeah. And uh, so that one is funny how that all worked out. Above your desk is that the one that Ted had. <laughs> yes, it was a gift. Uh, my then fiance gave it to me as a gift. Natalie's now my wife, and for one Christmas, no, not, and I'm looking at it the right one, now. It's not the exact and, uh, one. Ted. There's, it's it's not the exact one. That's in evidence somewhere. But I did get to see it. I was the first one to see this funny little round signature of Toulouse Lautrec, which I think he did. I mean, as you know, artists do signatures different over time. Uh, it's not always the exact same signature, which, of course, I'm sure you've looked at possible forgeries or you've worked with people who did. and say, oh, no, in 1850, that's not how he signed it. He signed it this way. And that's one way of telling a forgery. Of course, the really good fake, phony and fraud artist will know that or they should. But that is one way, the actual signature, if you will, and how it's done. Yeah, to tell exactly. I mean, well, signatures can be faked pretty easily. Uh, it's it's more uh, difficult to, to fake all the forensics, you know, that had the correct paints, the correct age of the canvas. I mean, you know, where do you find 300 year old canvas today? You know, it's tough. So these are the types of things yeah. that uh, are really hard to find that good forgers can use. The issue today, um, like the biggest fraud case recently was the Nodler Gallery case in New York City. And that involved about $60 million worth of fake uh, abex art, abstract expressionist art. You know, Clifford Still, Mark Rothko, um, you know, uh, the people we talked about. 
Uh, and so they had a guy that was uh, actually a, a Chinese guy in Brooklyn who was painting these things and selling them for no money to a gallery in Manhattan, who then would take them to the Nodler Gallery in New York City, and they would be selling them for millions of dollars. So um, the problem with those is wow. those, that canvas still exists. That paper still exists. And it's easy to get. It's not forensically, it's hard to identify, you know, you have to look at the paints and see if they, you know, and if you, the paints from the 1950s and 60s are still out there, still available. Yeah. So all of that stuff is still, is easy to make. You know, the biggest uh, faked artist is Mark Chagall because his material is very, it's very easy to fake. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Uh, okay. I hope the few, um, presentations I went to of his art. I hope I was seeing the right thing. Uh, you know, the I, biggest, I would know the difference. The theft, Maybe some others the would. Pain, the painter who has the most pieces stolen is Picasso. There's more stolen Picassos than anything else, uh, any other specific painter. And, and the reason for that is because he was so prolific. He did so yeah. many art, artworks, right. you know, with his prints, just say there's one series called the 347 series that he did in 1968. And that was 347 prints over the course of about eight months. And each print was, was published 50 times. There was 50 copies of each. So if you think about it, if you just multiply that out, you're talking about 18,000 artworks, you know, just wow. that one series for that one period of time. So wow. it's it just, you know, it's, it's mind boggling how much material is out there by Picasso. Wow. Bob, if I can just, I know, Ray, you have some, but I'm a behavioralist too. And I guess what I'm wondering is, um, you know, the, they may be thugs that steal stuff. They may be a little more sophisticated than that, probably have burglaries in their background. But who are the kind, what's the mindset? What's What kind of people want to buy these uh, stolen, the stolen artwork or sculptures, whatever it may be, when they know they really can't exhibit it? It's it's only for their, essentially for their private showings. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about the end, the end user here. I know there may be some middlemen in between, uh, but uh, you know, what kind of person is that? Besides being, I'm sure, extremely wealthy, have you ever come across any of these people? Why did they want to have a, a stolen piece of art that essentially only well, they can look yeah, at? Yeah, there's a couple doing? of answers to that question because you, you have to look at the different tiers of of thieves. You know, to, to answer that question. Now, we're not talking about fakes and frauds and forgeries here. It's the actual theft people. And no. there's three different tiers of thieves. There's there's the professional thieves who do all types of crime and who are out there and they happen to do an art robbery. So they go and they rob a museum. You know, it's not it's not what they always do, but that's what they did. And, and their motivation is to make money. So what they want to do is try to sell the paintings. And their biggest problem is that the real art in an art heist is not the stealing, it's the selling. And they get caught when, when, the, art, when the artwork comes to market. So there's nobody out there that's paying $3 million for a $30 million stolen painting. It doesn't happen, okay? Um, so that, that's a fallacy. That's something that started back around 1962 with Dr. No, the famous James Bond movie. And yeah. at that time, yeah, Dr. No had his cameras. Right. And there was a, a stolen Goya the, the year before a Goya was stolen from the uh, from the National Gallery in, in London. And one of the producers of Dr. No saw the article in the paper and thought it'd be interesting. So what he did was he turned around and he got a copy made of the painting. OK, and he put it on an easel. And when Sean Connery went into the into the Dr. No's caverns, he saw the easel 
and made this look like I wondered where that went. You know, and it was all mm -hmm. it was tongue in cheek. You know, and the producer did it right. that way. And right. so I get it. ever since then, I everybody thinks there's just Dr. No sitting in his basement staring at his stolen art. And that's not right. what's happening. So that's the one that's the one tier. Now, and, and the interesting okay. end of that story is somebody stole the reproduction <laughs> after the movie was made. <laughs> it went it disappeared. So no anyway. way. Yeah, it's yeah, great. Truth. They, ended up that that. Great. they got the painting back the next year. But anyway, <laughs> so that's the one level. That's the, you know, the, uh, the armed robbers and wanted to go out and spill these million dollar artifacts, paintings, trying to sell. What you're talking about is the second two levels. The second level of that is shoplifters. Okay, that's people who go in these historic homes. They go into museums. And because they can get away with it, they steal these things. They don't go to sell them. They do it for the thrill. And they get a thrill on it. They take it and they stick it in a, in a you know, into a, a private room somewhere in their house and just hide it. It's not that they want the item. It's they want the thrill of stealing. They're kleptomaniacs. So that's, that's another mm -hmm. level. Uh, the third level are the, are the, it's interesting, it's the curators. It's the curators, the experts, uh, the historians. And I, I've had cases where I've caught them and they'll, they'll be doing this for years. They'll steal hundreds of items. And when you interview them, you find out that they have this mindset that because they know about the, this, this material, they know it, they, they, uh, they study it, they love it, why can't they have it? You see, in other words, it's in the museum and it's in a storage unit. And so nobody's looking at it and nobody cares about it except them. So why can't they have it? They have a right to it. And it's a very fun, funny mindset. It's like, it's like they don't believe that they're stealing. They think that they're actually caretaking the material better than the museum or better than someone else is. Makes and sense. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird collector's mind. And I've seen that Makes happen sense. too. Yeah. Hmm. But it's not for, that's not million dollar paintings. That's usually smaller items. I had a case in Philadelphia at the Historical Society where uh, a maintenance man was selling one piece at a time for seven years to an electrician who had done work in the, uh, in the Historical hmm. Society. And in the end, we, we found in the electrician's house, he had one of the finest collections of U.S. historical items in, in, in the country, <laughs> worth two and a half million dollars, more than 200 pieces. And this was over wow. a seven year period, one piece at a time. And that was his whole thought. I mean, I love this stuff. Why can't I have it? It was just so interesting. I hope he at least had the room well lighted. Uh, yeah, good. Uh, on the, on the electronics works. for his alarm. So at least you could better than the museum. <laughs> I bet. I'll bet. I'll bet. There you go. Well, yeah. Let me throw this. I'm going to throw this by in and, and maybe you could talk about each one. Um, you've been recognized internationally uh, and even received accommodations from many political leaders, both foreign and domestic, um, because you recovered various artifacts. I'm wondering if I talk about mention each award that you got. You could tell me why you got that award from that entity. So, for instance, the first one was in 2000. It was the Peruvian Order of Merit for Distinguished Service, and it was presented by the president of Peru. What was that? What was that for? If you if you remember, it's interesting. It was Alberto Fujimara who's in prison. <laughs> he was the president at the time, and uh, he's, I think he's in prison right now in Peru. Anyway, uh, that was <laughs> that was for me. Yeah. That's that's not unusual in Peru, right? I mean, no, no, I, I agree. I agree. One to the next. But uh, that was for recovering a 2,000-year-old uh, artifact that was looted from a tomb. 
Uh, it was a golden piece of body armor. And it's the largest piece of gold ever found in a tomb in the Americas. Uh, it was taken out uh, and being offered for sale. Uh, it was actually um, uh, smuggled into the United States by, by a diplomat from the Panamanian consulate in New York City. This guy was the consul general. And so he was trying to sell it to me for 1.6 million. And we were able to do an undercover deal where, you know, he was arrested and we were able to recover this piece and give it back to the people, people of Peru. Oh, nice. Very nice. How about in 2001, John Ashcroft, the attorney general at the time, provided you with an award for outstanding contributions in law enforcement. What was that for? That was just in general because the uh, AUSAs I was working with put my name in for it. Okay. <laughs> you know how that goes, right? Yeah, that I was, do. I do. I do. In general, just general work. Yeah. All right. And, no, and he never wound up in prison, so that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, we don't know about the U.S. attorney. attorney. Yeah. All right. 2003, you received by the Spanish National Police. They give you the White Cross of Law Enforcement Merit Medal. Right. That, that was uh, for an undercover operation we did in Madrid. Uh, New York office had, had developed information on a, from an informant that uh, he could introduce us to this gang in Madrid who had stolen $60 million worth of paintings uh, from a woman um, who was married to the, the, the chief industrialist, steel magnate in Spain. Uh, he was a friend of the king. And so we went over to Madrid. We uh, started this operation. I, I posed as a collector and, and dealer and art professor for the uh, Russian mob. And we offered 10 million for these paintings. Uh, they were able, we actually went into a nice hotel room down in, in, in center of Madrid and we were able to do the operation. And we recovered all the paintings for the, uh, you know, for the country. So as a result, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we were given the uh, Spanish Award of Merit for police. Nice. Very nice. Two, 2004. Impressive. You get the Robert Burke Memorial Award for Excellence in Cultural Property Protection. That was given to you by the Smithsonian Institute at the National Conference on Cultural Property Protection. Was that uh, what was that about, Bob? That was just uh, in general for you know uh, years of working these types of cases, uh, and you know being the uh, I guess the person from the FBI who did those operations. And then in 2010, you get the Safe Beacon Award. Now, Safe stands for saving antiquities for everyone what was that uh was that just accumulation i mean and now you're not in the bureau anymore in no, 2010 well, uh, you're out of the bureau right yeah that's that's accumulation of getting uh antiquities back i mean I, after i left the bureau in 2008 i started my own company robert whitman incorporated where we do investigations into theft um into uh frauds forgeries fakes and 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 we also do security for museums uh, institutions uh, and provenance research for collectors. Mm -hmm. So all types of artwork, art business that we get into. Now, before we went on the air, we were talking about last week, uh, you were in Vienna. Uh, what were you doing in Vienna? What was all, what was that all about? Uh, I'm part of a task force. Uh, it's called the transnational task force against the, against the uh, looting of artifacts and transportation across uh borders. So it's with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. And this task force, we go around uh, different countries in Europe training police officers, customs officers, prosecutors, 
on how to do investigations and how to how to identify these stolen objects, you know, when they come into their countries. Right now, the emphasis on Ukraine, of course, because of all the looting and damage to the museums, institutions in Ukraine, we're seeing a lot of things coming across borders, uh, being transported out. So they're, it's, it's basically raising awareness with all these different law enforcement agencies to try to stop that, uh, that uh, illicit transportation. And you also said that uh, you do another gig besides that business you have, you go on cruise ships. <laughs> I, think, I think that's pretty neat. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm on Seaborne uh, Luxury Cruises, and I, uh, I take a couple of cruises a year. And uh, it's a nice way to, to take a little vacation. And, and also, I do lectures on the ships. So as a result, um, I get uh, to go on the cruises uh, gratis. But uh, I can do the lectures, two or three lectures or whatever, over the course of a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I get to do, uh, see the world a bit. Nice. That is nice. Now, Bob, you've written. Go ahead. You know, Ray, uh, I was going to say, based on what we just heard from Bob, uh, I think he wins the Indiana Jones Award for the Cold Red podcast. I don't think anyone has come closer no to real life Indiana Jones. Yeah, but you know, Bob. I, you must I have heard to, that before, uh, Bob. I kind of embraced that for a while, but then I kind of let it go because, you know, Indiana Jones was a looter. <laughs> so it's really kind of, it's kind of not uh, 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 in vogue right now with, uh, with collectors and, and, and all the people that are trying to stop the illicit transportation of artifacts, you know. Uh, so because he, he was a looter. It's kind well, of, you know, it's not. I, I kind of stopped using that. <laughs> hey, so I, we'll I call you Pennsylvania Whit or Whitman, something <laughs> like that. That works. That works for me. Well, there you go. As we kind of wrap this up now, you you've written a couple books here. Um, uh, even your career with with ACT that we talked about, the Art Crime Team, but the first book was priceless. Um. I mean, I read that book. I, I've even read The Devil's Diary as well. But Priceless, it was almost like I was there with you because you talked about a lot of things that were familiar to me on the squads, in the city, all these type of things, other than when you were growing up. But what a fantastic book. I couldn't put it down, Bob. Well, you, I mean, you, uh, you know it's true because you were there. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. But I mean, it was just it was just amazing, you know, when you when you sit down and read that. And I just thought, wow. And it, and here, that book is a New York times bestseller. I mean, and that's, that doesn't happen that often to people and uh, you should be congratulated, but what, 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 what made you even think to, to, to write a book? What was, what was behind that? I mean, uh, what, where'd the idea come from? I wanted to uh, really, I wanted to get the word out to try to tell, let people know that it's, it's important to protect cultural heritage and to protect our art uh, for our children, you know, and our grandchildren. Uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of times people don't take art seriously. You know, they think of it as like a rich man's game where, you know, it's some guy, some guy is gonna get something stolen and an insurance company's gonna pay for it. But it's more than that. It's our history and our heritage. And when these things go missing sometimes, you know, we lose a piece of our heritage and, and it's something that needs to be protected. So I wanted to write a book that you know, not only did it tell the stories, but was interesting for people, that they would find it interesting and enjoy it, but then learn a little bit about the importance of cultural heritage at the same time. What about your, now, I, I kind of told everybody what Price was about. It was about your career, time you grew up, your career all the way through the FBI. 
But tell us about The Devil's Diary. Tell us the about Devil's that. Diary is later on. That book came out in 2016. And that uh, was about an investigation. Part of it was about an investigation we did for the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Uh, they called me in 2013 and asked me to do an investigation to try to find the diary of Alfred Rosenberg. Uh, Rosenberg was the chief civil scientist for Adolf Hitler. Met Hitler in 1919, pretty much in many ways made Hitler into the man that we know of today. You know, when he met Hitler, he was just, uh, uh, he was a corporal in the army. And he was basically spying on Alfred Rosenberg's Nazi party to try to find out what they were doing to report back to the to the government. And what happened there was that Adolf Hitler fell in love with the philosophies and the ideas that Rosenberg was putting out. And as a result, he became his greatest student. And then he overtook Rosenberg because Rosenberg was a thinker. He wasn't a big speaker. He knew that this kid, Adolf Hitler was, you know, he had the charisma and he could pull it off. So he brought uh, Hitler into his fold, made him a student, actually was surpassed by him. And Hitler, of course, became the head of the party. But, you know, when, when Hitler went to jail uh, in the mid-1920s for a year, he made Rosenberg the head of the party while he was away. So that's how much of a, a trust he had in Alfred wow. Rosenberg. Yeah. So this, this diary was written between 1935 and 1945 when Rosenberg was hung uh, after the Nuremberg trials. He was one of the top 10, the first 10 Nazis that were executed. And it went missing uh, because one of the prosecutors at the Nuremberg trial, the U.S. prosecutor stole it, basically, took it and sent it back to Pennsylvania. He was living in Philadelphia at the time. And it went missing. It had never been uh, transcribed or translated. And so the Holocaust Museum was very interested in getting this back because there's very few, you know, first hand accounts from the highest reaches of the Third Reich. Rosenberg was the, you know, the Reich Minister of the East. He was in charge of Russia, Poland, Hungary, all of that. And he was also right. the person in charge of recovering or stealing all the art in Europe, all those artifacts to bring back to the future Fuhrer Museum in Munich. So as a result, you know, he had all of that on his plate as well. This uh, diary was missing and it was, uh, it wasn't a diary like to be published. A lot of those guys wrote, a few of them wrote diaries that they were gonna publish, talking about how great they were and all that, all the propaganda. Rosenberg didn't do that. This was his actual thoughts. This was him sitting down after his meetings with Hitler, after his meetings with others and writing down his thoughts at night. And so it was about 400 pages. It had never been transcribed or, or translated. And we really didn't know what was in it. Nobody knew. It's brand new stuff from, like I said, the highest reaches of the Third Reich during the war that was contemporaneous. Uh, so they, they, they hired my company to go out and try to find it. We did find it. Ultimately, we got it back. And then the book is about the recovery, the investigation. And then about three quarters of the book is, is uh, actually talking about what's in the diary and coordinating that with what was happening during the war. So in other words, the day that Russia was attacked, the day that the you know uh, Operation uh, Barbarossa started, Rosenberg talks about being in his garden, taking care of his flowers because he's growing his flowers because that's going to be Russia. You know, when he goes into Russia, he'll be growing that flower. And so it's a, it's really a strange, um, kind of a strange way of looking at the war and what he was doing. 
you know, and, and the other thing that the Holocaust Museum wanted was, uh, you know, nowhere is it actually written where Hitler said, you know, destroy the Jews. He, he was always, he kept that at arm's length. All of them did. You know, when they had their meetings, they would send their deputies and they would not actually attend, the deputies would. Uh, but they knew what was going on. But they would never actually, you know, uh, put out a memo or anything like that with their names on it. So the museum was, was wondering if in this diary, if at some point Rosenberg would write, you know, today the Fuhrer agree with me to destroy the Jews. Because it was his idea, you know, to, to get rid of all the Jews in Europe. So uh, that's what they were looking for, that smoking gun. Because it doesn't, it's not out there anywhere at this point. And they're looking for that smoking gun to show that there was a direct connection. I mean, we all know there was, but this is, sure. it's, but it's not written anywhere, you know, in history. Wow. Wow. I tell you what, uh, to our listeners, that's a book to get. I mean, I, I mean, I want to, I read it. I want to read it again. Cause I mean, I'm, now I have a different perspective looking at it and reading it, you know, to, to, to get it from, you know, from the horse's mouth here and then go back and read it. It'll make more sense to me because there was a lot of stuff there that I'm thinking, wow, this is almost like a history book. Yeah. It almost reads like a history book. I'm thinking, it, wow. It's a, it's a very dark, uh, you know, prices yeah. is fun to read. I think. Yeah. You know, you yeah I, it, I agree. You can do it in, in three or four hours. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, I did yeah. two days. I mean, half one day, half the next day. Yeah. But you know the, what I mean? the devil's diary, you'll, you'll laugh and you'll cry. I mean, I, I you know, yeah. it's, there's parts in there that are just uh, very, very uh, sad, you know, with what was yeah. going on. And like I say, it was a, it was a hard book to write because uh, you had to delve into that part of history where there were a lot of demons, you know? Yeah. They are. And Bob, those demons are still around today, and I would urge our audience to read that book and follow up on their history that doesn't end just a few weeks or a few months ago, but goes back 60, 80, a whole century, and find out uh, uh, some of the issues about the Holocaust, what led to it, and uh, and obviously the people like Rosenberg, who, uh, who influenced Adolf Hitler. And uh, yeah, so I think folks who have a couple good reads out there Maybe a fun one with Priceless, but uh, the other one certainly will give us a sense of history right yeah, up to what's uh, happening today in the Middle history East does repeat and itself. elsewhere. I mean, it absolutely does. And does. a lot of the themes yes, it does. Uh, are, you know, uh, people learn from the past and they use the same themes because they do work on masses of people. So it's a strange, it's, a, it's, it's very much a pertinent thing, you know, for today. Yeah, you would think people would know. And those who don't learn from the past, those who don't learn from the past will make the same mistakes so, as in the past. Tell so. us, is there another book in you? Uh, not right now. It, it's too hard. No. <laughs> it is. It is. Trust years. me. I, I've done it. Jim's done it. Yeah. Jim's on his fourth one. It's you hard. Know? I mean, you know, and, it is. and, and, and uh, uh, you know, it takes a long time. You got to find the right story. And, and a lot of the things that I look into, I find that they're, they're long form articles, like for New Yorker or something like that, Atlantic Magazine. They're not books. And books, right. are, books are hard, you know, they're hard to find. I agree. You I guys agree know, you. you do them too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We both, we're both authors too. Uh, yeah. We've both written books. So are you going to continue what you're doing in your security? And uh, in in your business, you, is that your plan to continue with that? Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, 
I'm not going to stop. I enjoy what I do. And if you like what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? So it's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah, that's and, the truth. Uh, you know, what, what, <laughs> you know, it's a funny thought. You know, people retiring. I knew an FBI agent when I was a kid, and he was in Baltimore. His uh, name was Walter Gordon, great guy, and he was a supervisor, white collar crime supervisor in the Baltimore office. This is back in 1960, right? So he retires and he sits on his porch. I guess he was on his porch maybe six or seven years. Then he had a heart attack. And when he, after he got left the bureau, he just kind of sat on his porch and read the newspaper. And I thought to myself, I'm not, you know, why would anybody want to do that? You, know, you can't do it. You got to no, keep I'm going. with you. Yeah. So that's I'm why we you. all keep working. That's it. I get, you yeah. have to do something, you know, you got to, got to have a purpose every day. Yeah. Got to yeah, have a purpose. Yeah. So Bob, if, if, if we wanted to, someone wanted to reach out to you to say, you know what? I listened to this podcast. I heard uh, this guy, Bob Whitman talk. I'd like to have him come and speak at a at a gathering that I have, or I'd like to have him do something. How can how can they get a hold of you? Oh, I mean, just check out my website, right? Uh, RobertWhitmanInc.com, and it's W-I-T-T-M-A-N-I-N-C.com. Or you can even send me an email, RobertWhitmanInc at Live.com. So either way, any of those things, or call me on the phone. My, all the contact information is on my website. Outstanding. Outstanding. And remember, folks, if you have any stolen art, you can go right to Bob or come through us, too. And we'll we'll be the middleman for you <laughs> right. to return this, the art, not to not, steal it. Look, just to make that got clear. a special room. In we his don't house, do the bad Bob. stuff. I didn't we want to do say anything stuff. on the air. He's got a special room. In his, you see, he's got something up on the wall there, right? He's not <laughs> showing it to you. He's got another room. He's Toulouse got another room back there, too. Andre de toulouse you know? Okay. All right. Yeah, you know. <laughs> he's how he is, right? So yeah. is, is there anything else you want to you want to add here Bob that before we before we sign off? No, I just want to thank you guys. You guys are doing a great job with this. Uh it's a it's a good podcast you got going. Uh thank you guys you. are hard working guys doing, you know, doing what you do now. And you are great agents. So it's great to talk to you. Yeah. Well, thank you Bob for thanks for being here with uh Jim and I. Likewise, uh, Bob. We really really appreciate it and uh Jim, take us home. Yeah, this has been fun. We want to thank Bob Whitman for joining us today and giving our audience insight into an incredible career working for the FBI. And again, it's been great having you as a guest. Uh, remember, everyone, subscribe to the Cold Red Podcast. Follow us on all Cold Red Podcast social media platforms and coldredpodcast.com. We'll see you next time with another colorful guest or interesting guest or special <laughs> guest. We have different qualifications for them. Until then, stay safe. Be aware of your surroundings. It may just say thank you guys. guys. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Bob. Have a good one. All right, Matt.